Good morning. You know, today is one of my favorite holidays. It is uh, a summertime holiday. What is there not to like about July 4th and uh, Independence Day? When we think about what is a part of so much of our day on this day, this will be a day for us to enjoy watermelon and cookouts and camping chairs and fireworks displays. Maybe we've already started to enjoy some of that. But this is a national holiday. It is a holiday where we think back on the beginning of our nation and the blessings that are a part of our lives because that we are in this nation. And even though there have been a series of events that have occurred over the the last relatively recent time that cause us to hang our head in shame, we think back over the heritage of our nation and why it is that we have such pride We think about the fact that we have been given so many privileges and we've been given so many freedoms. And chief among those should be to the Christian that we have the ability to worship our God and to express that freedom of religion. It grows more precious to us, I think, each and every day. But why July 4th? Why is that the day that has been set aside for us to enjoy or to experience this national day of celebration? Like all of us know that this is the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It happened on a cool sunny morning in Philadelphia in 1776, where individuals that made up our nation got together to say that we wanted to be free. We wanted to be independent. Well, as we think in terms of that, we think about that document, the Declaration of Independence, and perhaps we're most familiar with the second paragraph. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and have been endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, we might look at the entirety of that document and see that it begins by referencing nature's God and it ends by talking about the one who is the supreme judge of the world. And it has language that points the nation to God repeatedly, that we enjoy the protection of divine providence. But at the heart of that document is a set of grievances against Britain and how we wanted to throw off the yoke of tyranny. And we wanted to be self-governing. We wanted to be independent. This is a nation that from its very beginning has wanted to be free and has wanted to flex its independence. I want to submit to you this morning that there are two types of people in this world. There are those who know that they are dependent and there are those who do not. And I want us to think about the words of someone who understood his dependence more than anyone else perhaps the Bible reveals to us. And he expresses, he declares that dependence by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according unto your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Hide your face from my sin and cleanse me from iniquity. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this iniquity in your sight that you might be clear when you judge it and, and uh, clear when you justify when you speak and clear when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inner part, in the hidden man. You will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with your free spirit. Cast me not away from your presence, O God. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Then will I teach transgressors your way. And sinners shall be converted unto you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and I will sing praises unto you. For you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good will unto Zion, and we shall offer again in Jerusalem, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And then shall we offer again those sacrifices of righteousness, burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. And then shall we offer the bull upon your altar. In Psalm chapter 51, you have the words of David, a declaration of dependence. And as you look at David the man, the man who utters these words, you have an individual who had much more power than you and I will ever have. He was a deadly effective warrior in this world. And though he would be able to, with his riches and with his influence and with his prestige, be able to do whatever it was that he wanted to do, he was a man who knew how much he needed God's favor and forgiveness. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at this psalm through the prism of our own lives. And when we do that, I think that we can see how much we depend on him. This declaration of dependence from David is our song as well. And because it's the same reasons that we have in coming to him and declaring it. I want to notice three things, and the lesson is yours. The first thing I'd like us to notice together is that we have the cause of David's declaration of dependence. And the cause is sin. As David reflects on the events that we saw, and if you look at the top of your psalm, you probably have an inscription. This is not put in there by the Holy Spirit. It is put in there by those who broke down the psalms and gave us our chapters and our verses. But it's an accurate description. If there is a psalm, the background of which we know clearly, it's Psalm 51. The background of Psalm 51 is the events that we just saw Nathan confront David with in 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember that it was the time when kings went out to war that David stayed behind. He stood on top of his house. He looked over next door and he saw one of his soldier's wives as she was taking a bath. And he longed for her. He lusted for her. He called for her. Brought her into his room and he uh, had, had an adulterous affair with her. And as a result of this, she is impregnated with his child. And he's trying to do all he can to cover his tracks. He tries multiple ways to deceive Uriah and to get Uriah to go into his wife Bathsheba so that it could not be traced back to him. This is the day before DNA tests and paternity suits. And so if he could just get Uriah with Bathsheba, then all would be well. But Uriah was a much more faithful man than David. So David, feeling that he had no recourse, looking through earthly eyes, arranged at the hands of God's enemies... For the death of Uriah. It was a contract killing that he did through Joab, the head of his army. 
And David walks away from that, has Bathsheba come to his house and makes her his wife. And he goes along as she is expecting his child and that child is born. And there's never a a word of remorse until after Nathan the prophet comes. And in the wake of that, all that happens that is revealed in Scripture and that's not revealed in Scripture, David sits down with a heavy heart and he writes this psalm. And in it, he is declaring his dependency on God because of his sin. And as he does so, the the cause of his declaration being sin, I want us to notice a couple of things about it. That first of all, there's this intense plea that he makes. He throws himself on the mercy of God. And what else is he to do? It is against God. He says in Psalm 51, most of all that he has sinned. He says against you, you only have I sinned. He's not saying that he hasn't hurt all those other people that I just mentioned. He is saying what we understand that all sin ultimately is against God. And so with that in his heart and mind, David approaches the throne of God with this intense plea. But the beautiful thing is, is that he knows that this plea can be heard. He understands God's ability to cure him of the sin problem that he has. And so you'll notice the words that he uses that indicates that he appreciates that very fact. He talks about the fact that God is able to purify him and to cleanse him and to hide his face from him and to purge him with hyssop, to create in him a clean heart and to restore unto him all these words that he is is mentioning here is because he knows that God is able. Perhaps as you struggle with your sin, you may doubt that God is able to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from unrighteousness. But what David is doing in expressing these words is demonstrating that he knows that God can do this. In Isaiah 1 and verse 18, God through the prophet Isaiah speaks to the people and he, he, he calls them. He says, come now, let us reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Now when he speaks to them, they are a people who are spiritually sick. They're wounded and they're evil. I read a few summers ago about a, a young boy named Taylor Gase. 16-year-old sports phenom. He was a football star and a baseball star. But he died of a rare form of bubonic plague known as septicemic plague. Through antibiotics, we've all but eradicated in the civilized world bubonic plague. But uh, Taylor began to show some symptoms after pitching in a baseball game. And his parents just thought that he had the flu. And the CDC has no idea what the source of this plague was for the young man. And the thing about it is is that if he had sought treatment within 24 hours of showing symptoms, he would have been easily cured. But because he did not, he died. What I understand of septicemic plague is that untreated, it is 100% fatal. And I wonder, is there anything more tragic than having some disease and not knowing what it is so you're not able to seek a cure? Perhaps it is knowing exactly what you have and then not reaching out to have it cured. Can you imagine being Taylor and his parents and going to their family doctor and sitting down and the doctor saying, oh my, we've done a test and you have septicemic plague. We've got to treat this now. And Taylor and or his parents saying, "Eh, I think we'll take our chances. But you see, so often what happens is for one reason or another, we find ourselves in the position where we have this spiritual sickness of sin. 
and we know exactly what it is because we have the medical journal right here and we can see the diagnosis as clearly as could be. And sometimes when confronted with that, all we say is, I'll take my chances. But David, he, as he is expressing his intense plea to God, he is doing so knowing that God is able to cleanse him. He's the only one that's able to do so. There's nowhere else that you can go to try to cope with and handle the sin that is present in all of our lives where it's going to be taken care of. This is the only place to God. He is able. But you see, it's even better than that. As David declares his dependency upon God, the the nature of this intense plea is such that he does so not just because God is able, but also because God is willing. You see, when you reflect on David's situation, he's full of, and he uses different words, doesn't he? He's full of sin and wickedness and iniquity and evil. All these different ways to describe it. But God is full of compassion and loving kindness. And so he knows that he can bring this to a God who longs to take care of it. It's interesting, David writes the 51st Psalm, but in the 50th Psalm, one of the sons of Asaph write that. In the very last verse of that Psalm, God says to the people, he says, You thought that I was altogether, that is, completely like you are. Now that's not a commentary on Psalm 51, but it's a commentary on human nature. And so here's what will happen. You hurt me, you betray me, and I may never let you forget it. I'll find ways, I'll find these indirect little passive-aggressive ways to put a dig in on you. So just so, just in case you're, you're healing and getting past it, I'm going to let you know. Or maybe it is that you don't even know that you've hurt me or offended me, and I'm still not going to forget it. And you know, it, it's, it's a, a very plausible thing to say that we think that God thinks like we think and that God feels like we feel and that God acts like we act. But David has the confidence in coming to God knowing he's not only able to help but that he's willing to help. God says, look, I know you've got this problem. You're going to have to come to me over and over again, sometimes for the same shortcomings and sin. And I want to give you this assurance. You can come. And I am willing to forgive and to forget. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in David's place. I've done some things that I'm horribly ashamed of and I wouldn't want you to know. And you have as well. But, but do you really feel a little better about yourself when you put yourself up against David and what he has done? And yet here is David with that in his background. Understanding the predicament he has gotten himself in. And he makes this intense plea. And no wonder that alongside of that, he has this spiritual self-awareness. I mean, really, he's standing naked, as it were, emotionally, spiritually before God. I mean, there's no way to hide from the God who knows everything. And so he comes into his throne room, he comes into his presence. And and the thing that's interesting to me, I, I had not noticed this before, that if you'll walk through that psalm and you'll count every time that David uses a personal pronoun, I, me, and my you'll find 32 times, 32 times in the tone of confession, he is looking at himself as he is before God and he says, look, there's no way for me to hide it. I'm guilty. I've done this. I'm with sin. I have sinned. I know what I've done. I've hurt you. But if you'll also walk through that psalm one more time and if you'll count 
the number of times that David mentions God or Lord or addresses him directly, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's 32 times. That David says, I know what I've done and it's horrible. But God, I know that you're as big as that. You're bigger than that. And you can take care of it. A spiritual self-awareness that is engaged in properly says, I'm guilty. But I know that God is able to heal me of my guilt. He is able to take care of the sin problem. When I look at the Romans 3 and verse 23, and I realize I've long uh, passed the age of accountability where I know right from wrong, I've sinned, and the, the consequences of that are eternal. And yet I, I come with an awareness that God is able and willing to forgive me. He's bigger than my sin. Now if I stay where I'm at, I need to understand that the fatality rate and not Going to God to, for the cure is 100%. There's no alternative. If I don't go to Him with this and bring it to Him, there's no hope. And yet, as I look at this psalm, I see something else. In this declaration of dependence, not only do I see the cause, which is sin, the sin which envelops all of our lives, but I also see the, the cure. And the cure is salvation. As I look in verses 7 through 12, there's a shift in David's focus here. He is now focusing on what God will do. We've already talked about that, the, the language, the wording that David uses. As he talks about God's action with regard to his sin, there are curative words. There are words where God says, I'm going to cleanse, I'm going to heal. And the beautiful thing about this is that David seems to look in three directions. For those of you who are accountable here this morning, when it comes to the sin problem that we share, you look in three directions, don't you? You look into your past, and there it is. You look into your present, maybe even today, and there it is. You look ahead and anticipate that if your life continues and if Christ doesn't come again in the next moment or two, that it's going to continue to be a struggle. We talked about that last week as we ended that series on the things that we struggle with, that we struggle with hypocrisy. What we struggle with is knowing that at our best we're going to continue to falter and fall and to have fault in our lives. But David, as he looks at his sin problem, he sees the cure. He looks at the past and he sees that he can have a past that is forgiven. Verse 7 through 11, David looks back on the events that have occurred with Bathsheba and with Uriah in the face of Israel and his army, and he sees what he's done, and he's living with the shame of that. But he sees that God is going to cure him of it. There's a 12-year-old boy that was playing hockey in New England, and it was his father's first game to be his head coach. And the boy was one of the stars of the team, and so he was bringing the puck up ice when one of the opponents hit him over the head with a hockey stick. And, and the boy falls down, and he's stunned, and he's, he's dazed. And all the teammates begin to gather around him as he doesn't get himself up immediately. And the boy leans over that father, and he doesn't tell him, ask him if he's okay. He says, they'll clap if you get up. Now, mamas are in horror at such an answer as that. Dads go, hey, that's what you do when that happens. And even if you think that that's not a compassionate way for an earthly father to react, what does God say when we have fallen spiritually but we get up? 
In Luke 15 and verse 7, Jesus says in that first parable of the lost things, He says that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who gets up, than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. David could look at his past as ugly and as awful as it was, and he could believe that his past was forgiven because of God's ability and God's willingness. But then he could also look at his present, and he could see that he was fortified in his present through God. In verse 12, he's not just seeing what God has done previously, he's looking at what God is able to do now. God not only forgives our past, but he sustains us in our present. I think sometimes we intellectually get that when one responds to God's grace, look, God had to give the sacrifice on Calvary. We couldn't have done it for ourselves. It was a substitute sacrifice. It's what we're remembering in the Lord's Supper. And we believe and we teach and we try to share it with all the people that we love in our lives. That look, if you will act in faith in Jesus as the Son of God, if you'll repent of your sins, change your mind that leads to a change of actions, if you'll confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you'll allow yourself to be lowered in water, to be buried with Christ, when you rise... You'll rise to walk in newness of life. You will be forgiven of your past sins. We believe that. We teach that. We must continue to teach that because that's what the New Testament teaches. There's no other way to be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12, than Jesus' way. We believe that, don't we? We believe that, that we can be forgiven of our past, that anybody can. But what about now? What about what we're going through? The struggles that we feel today? I think a lot of us doubt that God wants to and can forgive us of our sins. I'm not talking about as you hang on to sin and you're serving sin, but I'm talking about as you let go of that and you strive to walk in the light. 1 John 1 and verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But you know, he also looked forward to a future with God. That's how the psalm is going to end. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. But Uriah is dead. The illegitimate child is dead. David's shame is public. You know, nobody's going to come up to the king because he's still powerful and say, boy, everybody's talking about what you did. But they knew it. He knew that they knew it. I wonder if David, every time he looked into the eyes of Bathsheba, if he saw his past... If he had to review his army as they came up before him, I wonder if when he looked in the faces of those soldiers who looked up to him as the commander-in-chief, I wonder if he wondered if they were thinking about what he had done. But David has optimism. I want you to see how he ends that psalm. It's so different from the way that we so often respond in our sin. We keep ourselves in a prison that God has set us free from. We cause ourselves to have to beat ourselves up over and over again and that in effect denies the power of God who says that if you repent of sins and you come to me, I'll blot them out. They're gone. You don't have to carry the weight of them anymore. And we continue to keep ourselves from serving Him like we should because we're a slave to our past that God has forgiven. Now, I want you to see one last thing in this psalm and that is in this declaration of dependence He has pointed out the cause of his dependency. Because of a sin problem, he can't solve for himself. There's also the cure, the salvation that God has given to him so freely. 
But it produces something in him that it ought to produce in you and me. And that is a commitment. And the commitment is to service. With all that stuff in his past, he still believes that he can be useful to God. He still believes that he can be a servant that God can use. And I want us to keep that in mind. That God sometimes can do his greatest work with those who have been broken and that he has put back together. Now, I don't know that David, in some ways, David is not able to be in the position he was before his sin. He he has some weakness there. And I tell you, if you ask David, he would say, I wish I'd never done it. Oh, if I could just take it back. I wonder how often he replayed that scenario in his mind, if I could just go back in time. But not being able to change that. David looks ahead to future usefulness in the kingdom of God. He knows God can still use him. And so he wants to be in a position to serve God. Let me say this. When we have a sin problem and we appreciate that God has healed us of that spiritual disease, it ought to cause inside of us an appreciation that moves us to behave just like David does. And what is David's commitment to service here? First of all, he says, I want to be teaching the lost. In verse 13, hey, a very interesting thing happens in this psalm. In the very beginning of that psalm, he talks about his life and he says, what I've done is I have transgressed. You'll notice that in verse 1 and 2. What does he want to do in verse 13? I want to teach transgressors your ways. He's saying, what I was, there are others who still are. And you know what he mentions in the beginning of that psalm? He says, my sin is ever before me. Now that he's been healed, what does he want to do? Look at verse 13 and 14. He wants to convert sinners unto God. We have been healed to heal. We have been saved to save. God will take us as our lives are put back together by Him and in our service we can go out and we can teach the lost the very thing that we have learned. And that is that our mighty God is mighty to save. He wants to teach the lost. He also wants to be found worshiping God. In verse 14 and 15, one of the signs of spiritual health, it's not the only one, but it's a huge one, is a desire to worship God. You know, as we are more and more coming out of the, the things that happen with regard to the pandemic, I hope that that will not just be like we were before, but that we'll be better, we'll be closer to God. That we won't fall back into old habits that we had before. But I also hope that we don't allow ourselves to believe that because we were a congregation full of shut-ins and for a while that we had to all be home and away from each other and it allowed this opportunity for us to come together uh, virtually, that that was God's permanent arrangement because it's not. Listen, Hebrews 10.24 says that we are to stimulate one another into love and good deeds. You can't do that effectively virtually away from here. We need to come back together. Let me suggest to you that coming together allows us to experience one of the joys of salvation, and that's being able to open up our hearts in worship and praise to God. A sign of spiritual health is a desire to worship. A friend of mine, his name is Jeff White. He was converted. He was obedient to Christ about four or five years ago. He had a musical background, and so he started writing hymns. He's written two dozen songs, and some of them are about salvation and about hope and about heaven. Why is he so full of songs? You know, God puts a song on our lips. 
when we have been saved from our sins. And we want to sing praise to God. David says, open my lips and I'll sing praise to you. You know what you don't do when you're spiritually healthy and you are committed to serving God in worship? You don't make yourself the analyst of the worship services and the worshipers. David doesn't say, cleanse me from my sin and I'll make sure that everybody else is a better worshiper than they are. No, it's all personal with him. He wants to and he looks at himself and he says, I want to worship you. When we find ourselves as the critic of worship, there's danger within. We are slipping in our commitment to serve God. But he also wants to be found sacrificing himself. And that's how he ends the psalm. And I understand that he's still in the context talking about worship. The sacrifices he's talking about are the sacrifices of the animals in worship to God. But he understands that what God wants first and foremost is him If God gets us, he'll get our worship, he'll get our service, he'll get all of us. And David recognizes that. David recognizes that what God wants is a contrite spirit. A contrite and a broken heart, oh God, you won't despise. God knows if he gets our heart, he gets all of us. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of teaching that was delivered unto you. And being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. David says, I can't erase my past. But God saved me from that. He forgave me of that. And now on the other side of that as a new creature... God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do my very best. I'm going to focus on the lost around me. I'm going to focus on the praise that you deserve. And I'm going to give myself. I'm going to get up on the altar of faith and I'm going to just give my life. Romans 12 and verse 1. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. It's my reasonable service and I want to give it. There was a, in 1855, a... An Illinois state representative, at least he was a former uh, representative, he lost in the next election. He was practicing law again and he was looking back on less than a century before when the Declaration of Independence had been signed. Of course, his name was Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln looked at what happened there on that occasion. That's not Abraham Lincoln, that's a woman. You thought I didn't know that, didn't you? But Abraham Lincoln is there before uh, writing in a newspaper and he says that he's fearful that the nation had forgotten its first love. That we were so busy celebrating the holiday that we forgot why we had done that in the first place. We need reminders. That's why we have worship on the first day of the week. We need to be reminded over and over again of what God did for us. We need to be reminded constantly of our need of one another. We need to be reminded all the time about the commitment to service that we have made. Christianity is not about sitting on a pew. That's important. Let's not ever minimize it. God knew we needed it. He's the one that commands it. But we come to worship. What is it they say? We leave to serve. We go out to live the rest of our week striving to live out what it is that we say that we believe when we're together. And we need that constantly. But it's possible for us to forget and to leave our first love. You know, but God loves us so much. He loved David so much, but he loves you and me just as much that he allows us to come back. He says to the church at Ephesus, I have one thing against you, that you have 
left your first love. Therefore, remember where it is that you have fallen from and repent. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. That's heaven's invitation. You and I stand together on this common ground. We're in need of God's favor and God's forgiveness. July 4th and every other day of the year, we need to declare our dependency on God. Why? Because of sin. Because of salvation. And because those who have been saved from sin need to serve as long as we have breath in our bodies. This morning it may be that you need to respond to heaven's invitation. You may need to do the very thing that we mentioned a moment ago, to be forgiven of the sin that is in your life that has not been forgiven by becoming a child of God. If that's your need, we want to encourage you to respond publicly. Hey, but it's okay if you want to do it privately. When there's nobody else around and you just want us to baptize you into Christ, we would love to do that. Or study with you more about it. Our doors are always open. Our desire is always to help. But maybe you're a child of God who has just been beating yourself up over sin and you've convinced yourself you can't be forgiven. I hope you understand God better than that and know that there's no sin except the sin we don't bring to Him that He will not forgive. If you need to respond, He's waiting for you. He would long to help you. Won't you come right now as together we stand and sing?